God is glorious in his saints. Welcome to the Christian Saints Podcast. My name is Dr. Darren Ong, recording from Sepang in Malaysia. In this podcast, we explore the lives of the Christian saints from the Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox traditions. Today, we commemorate St. Teresa of Avila, mystic, theologian, and founder of the order of discarped Carmelites. St. Teresa of Avila, also known as St. Teresa of Jesus, was born as Teresa Sanchez de Capeda in 1515 in Avila, Spain, to devout Christian parents. Even as a young child, she displayed a strong devotion to Jesus Christ. Luckily for us, St. Teresa wrote an extensive autobiography, so we will quote from it here. This is the passage where she recounts her childhood. I had one brother, almost of my own age. It was he whom I most loved, though I had a great affection for them all, as had they for me. We used to read the lives of saints together, and when I read of the martyrdoms suffered by saintly women for God's sake, I used to think they had purchased the fruition of God very cheaply, and I had a keen desire to die as they had done, not out of any love for God, of which I was conscious, but in order to attain as quickly as possible to the fruition of the great blessings which, as I read, were laid up in heaven. I used to discuss with this brother of mine how we could become martyrs. We agreed to go off to the country of the Moors, begging our bread for the love of God, that they might behead us there. And, even at so tender an age, I believe the Lord had given us sufficient courage for this, if we could have found a way to do it. But our greatest hindrance seemed to be that we had a father and a mother. It used to cause us great astonishment when we were told that both pain and glory would last forever. We would spend long periods talking about this, and we liked to repeat again and again, forever, ever, ever. Through our frequent repetition of these words, It pleased the Lord that in my earliest years I should receive a lasting impression of the way of truth. When I saw that it was impossible for me to go to any place where they would put me to death for God's sake, we decided to become hermits and we used to build hermitages as well as we could in an orchard which we had at home. We would make heaps of small stones but they at once fell down again, so we found no way of accomplishing our desires. But even now it gives me a feeling of devotion to remember how early God granted me what I lost by my own fault. I gave alms as I could, which was but little. I tried to be alone when I said my prayers, and there were many such, in particular the rosary, 
to which my mother had a great devotion, and this made us devoted to them too. Whenever I played with other little girls, I used to love building convents and pretending that we were nuns, and I think I wanted to be a nun, though not so much as the other things I have described. I remember that when my mother died, I was twelve years of age, or a little less. When I began to realize what I had lost, I went in my distress to an image of Our Lady, and with many tears besought her to be a mother to me. Though I did this in my simplicity, I believe it was of some avail to me. For whenever I have commended myself to this sovereign virgin, I have been conscious of her aid, and eventually, she has brought me back to herself. The early death of her mother had a profound impact on young Teresa. Initially, it led to a dampening of her Christian fervor. She became distracted by romance stories, reading them for hours at a time, and preoccupied herself with the vanities that young women of her age engaged in. Her father, noticing that Teresa's devotion to Christ had cooled, hoped to rectify the matter by enrolling her in a school run by Augustinian nuns. This intervention worked, and St. Teresa returned to her former piety, eventually resolving to become a nun herself. However, at this time, she would suffer from extreme illness, but was miraculously restored back to health. This account is from Butler's Lives of the Saints. She, at length, in August 1537, lay near four days in a trance or lethargic coma, during which time it was expected that every moment would be her last. It being once imagined that she was dead, a grave was dug for her in the convent and she would have been buried if her father had not opposed it, and testified that he still perceived in her body certain symptoms of life. Through excess of pain, she had bit her tongue in many places, went out of her senses, and for a considerable time, she could not swallow so much as a drop of water without almost choking. Sometimes her whole body seemed as if the bones were disjointed in every part, and her head was in extreme disorder and pain. She could neither stir hand, nor foot, nor head, nor any other part, except, as she thought, one finger of her right hand. She was so sore that she could not bear anyone to touch her in any part, and she had often a great loathing of all food. Her pains being somewhat abated, she so earnestly desired to return to her monastery that she was carried thither, though her body seemed reduced to skin and bone, and worse than dead through the pain she endured. She continued thus above eight months, and remained a cripple near three years. The saint endured these sufferings with great conformity to the holy will of God, 
and with much alacrity and joy. Under these afflictions, she was helped by the prayer which she had then begun to use. When, in the beginning of this sickness, she was taken out of her convent and soon after carried into the country, her devout uncle Peter put into her hands a little book of F. Osuna called The Third Alphabet, treating on the prayer of recollection and quiet. Taking this book for her master, she applied herself to mental prayer according to the manner prescribed in it and was favoured with the gift of tears and the prayer of quiet in which the soul rests in the divine contemplation so as to forget all earthly things and sometimes, though not for a longer space than an Ave Maria at the time, she arrived at the prayer of union in which all the powers of the soul are absorbed in God. However, for want of an experienced instructor, she made little progress and was not able to hold any discourses in her understanding or to meditate without a book, her mind being immediately distracted. Yet she was wonderfully delighted with this holy meditation and received a heavenly light in which she saw clearly the nothingness of all earthly things, looked upon the whole world as under her feet and beneath the regard of a soul and pitied all persons who vainly pursue its empty bubbles. The paralytic disorder in which her fevers, violent headaches, and convulsions and contractions of her sinews had terminated began so far to be abated, and she was able to crawl upon her hands and feet. After three years' suffering, she was perfectly restored to her health, and she afterwards understood that she had received of God this favour and many others through the intercession of the glorious Saint Joseph, which she had humbly and earnestly implored. At this time, she would also start to receive the miraculous visions she would be famous for. They would come in many forms. Here is an example of one of her written accounts. Her book is filled with detailed descriptions of these visions, so I will share just one of them. While I was at prayer, I saw myself in the great field all alone, and around me there was such a multitude of all kinds of people that I was completely surrounded by them. They all seemed to have weapons in their hands for the purpose of attacking me. Some had lances, others swords, others daggers, and others very long rapiers. Well, I could not get away in any direction without incurring mortal peril, and I was quite alone there without anyone on my side. I was in great distress of spirit and had no idea what I should do. When I raised my eyes to heaven and saw Christ, not in heaven, but in the air high above me, holding out his hand to me, and encouraging me in such a way that I no longer feared all the other people, who try as they might, could do me no harm. This vision will seem meaningless, but it has since brought me the greatest profit, for the meaning was explained to me, and soon afterwards I found myself attacked in almost exactly that way, whereupon I realized that the vision was a picture of the world, the whole of which 
seemed to take up arms in an offensive against the poor soul, leaving out of account those who are not great servants of the Lord, and honors and possessions and pleasures and other things of that kind. It is clear that when the soul is not on the lookout, it will find itself ensnared, or at least all these will strive their utmost to ensnare it. Friends, relatives, and, what amazes me most, very good people. By all these I found myself oppressed. They thought they were doing right, and I did not know how to stand up for myself or what to do. She would also experience raptures, where she would levitate in the air. This was a source of embarrassment for her, and sometimes she even had to call for her fellow nuns to sit on her and hold her down. Here is her account of one of these raptures in her book. I can testify that after a rapture, my body often seemed as light as if all weight had left it. Sometimes this was so noticeable that I could hardly tell when my feet were touching the ground. For while the rapture lasts, the body often remains as if dead and unable of itself to do anything. It continues all the time, as it was when the rapture came upon it, in a sitting position, for example, or with the hands open or shut. The subject rarely loses consciousness. I have sometimes lost it altogether, but only seldom, and for but a short time. As a rule, the consciousness is disturbed, and though incapable of action with respect to outward things, the subject can still hear and understand, but only dimly, though from a long way off. I do not say that he can hear and understand when the rapture is at its highest point. By highest point, I mean when the faculties are lost through being closely united with God. At that point, in my opinion, he will neither see, nor hear, nor perceive. But as I said in describing the preceding prayer of union, this complete transformation of the soul in God lasts but a short time. And it is only while it lasts that none of the soul's faculties is able to perceive or know what is taking place. We cannot be meant to understand it while we are on earth. God, in fact, does not wish us to understand it, because we have not the capacity for doing so. St. Teresa was concerned about the laxity of the monastic order to which she belonged. She is celebrated for being a reformer of the Carmelite order, bringing back a greater rigor to their life, their prayer, and their devotion. And in this work, she was supported by St. John of the Cross. She founded many men's and women's monasteries for her reformed order. Those who followed her reforms are known today as the Discalt or Barefoot Carmelites. However, in pursuing these reforms, she attracted opposition. We read again from Butler as he goes through Teresa of Avila's reforms. St. Teresa, burning with a desire to promote with her whole strength the greater gratification 
of her own soul and that of others, and of laboring to secure by the most perfect penance her eternal salvation, concerted a project of establishing a reform in her order. The rule which had been drawn up by Albert, Patriarch of Jerusalem, was very austere. But in process of time, several relaxations were introduced, and a mitigation of this order was approved by a bull of Pope Eugenius IV in 1431. In the convent of the Incarnation at Avila, in which the saint lived, other relaxations were tolerated, especially that of admitting two frequent visits of secular friends at the grate in the parlour or speakhouse. Saint Teresa one day, expressing a great desire of living according to the original institute of the order, her niece Mary Diocante, then a pensioner in that house, offered 1,000 ducats to found a house for such a design, and a secular widow lady, Guillermo de Uloa, zealously encouraged the design, which was approved by Saint Peter of Alcantara, Saint Louis Bertrand, and the Bishop of Avila, and the saint was commanded by Christ in several visions and revelations which she recounts to undertake the same, with assured promises of success and his divine protection. The Lady Guillaume procured the license and approbation of Father Angelo de Salazar, provincial of the Carmelites in those parts. No sooner had the project taken wind, but he was obliged by the clamours which were raised against it to recall his license, and a furious storm fell upon the state. Through the violent opposition which was made by all her fellow nuns, the nobility, the magistrates, and the people. She suffered the most outrageous calumnies with perfect calmness of mind and silence, contenting herself with earnestly recommending to God his own work. St. Teresa is also celebrated as a writer and theologian. In fact, she and St. Catherine of Siena, were the first women recognized by the Roman Catholic Church as doctors of the church. The word doctor here is Latin for teacher. It, it does not refer to physicians as it does in modern times. She had a profound impact, in particular, on mystical theology, which she wrote extensively about. Here is a passage of her book, where she describes this mystical theology. I used sometimes, as I have said, to experience in an elementary form, and very fleetingly, what I shall now describe. When picturing Christ in the way I have mentioned, and sometimes even when reading, I used unexpectedly to experience a consciousness of the presence of God, of such a kind that I could not possibly doubt that he was within me, or that I was wholly engulfed in him. This was in no sense a vision. I believe it is called mystical theology. The soul is suspended in such a way that it seems to be completely outside itself. The will loves, the memory I think is almost lost. 
while the understanding, I believe, though it is not loss, does not reason. I mean that it does not work, but is amazed at the extent of all it can understand. For God wills it to realize that it understands nothing of what His Majesty represents to it. Previously to this, I had experienced a tenderness in devotion, some part of which, I think, can be obtained by one's own efforts. This is a favor neither wholly of sense nor wholly of spirit, but entirely the gift of God. It seems, however, that we can do a great deal towards the obtaining of it by reflecting on our lowliness and our ingratitude to God, on the great things that He has done for us, on His passion with its grievous pains and on His life, which was so full of afflictions. We can also do much by rejoicing in the contemplation of His works, His greatness, His love for us, and a great deal more. Anyone really anxious to make progress often lights upon such things as these, though he may not be going about looking for them. If to this there be added a little love, the soul is comforted, the heart melts, and tears begin to flow. Sometimes we seem to produce these tears by force. At other times the Lord seems to be drawing them from us, and we cannot resist Him. For the trifling pains we have taken His Majesty appears to be requiting us with the great gift of the comfort which comes to a soul from seeing that it is weeping for so great a Lord. And I do not wonder at this, for it has ample reason to be comforted, for here it finds encouragement, and here it finds joy. St. Teresa's writings on prayer have also been very popular. Famously, she described four degrees of prayer that a Christian can pursue in becoming closer to Jesus. We read here a brief reflection on these four degrees of prayer by the theologian Beverly Lanzetta. In the book of my life, Teresa describes four degrees of prayer, from earlier to advanced stages, beginners on the path she likens to persons trying to cultivate a garden in very barren soil, full of weeds. God assists beginners by pulling up the weeds and planting good seeds, but these seeds now have to be watered. The way in which the garden is watered becomes a creative metaphor for the progress the soul makes in giving over its will and resting in God. Beginners in prayer are unaware of how God is always within them, Teresa contends. Thus beginners labor to recollect their senses and tire themselves in the effort, a fact Teresa relates to drawing water from a well. The tedious work of often letting the pail down into the well and pulling it back up, she writes, makes them want to abandon everything. Fetching water from the well corresponds to the rational work of the intellect, which desires to understand and thus struggles with watering the soul. The movement from effort and self-will to rest and receptivity constitutes the maturing of the practice of prayer and the soul's journey from natural to supernatural states of consciousness. Teresa names the second degree of prayer the prayer of quiet. 
Here, watering the garden of the soul takes place by means of turning the crank of a water wheel and by aqueducts. More water is obtained with less labor. Communion with God takes place in the depths of the soul, when the intellect is stilled and the spark of divinity at its center is enkindled by love and desire. The ease with which water now flows brings all the flowers to bud, and the soul sees very clearly. Drawing closer to its divine source, the garden of the soul is now irrigated with water flowing from a river or spring. This third degree of prayer requires very little effort, as God so desires to help the gardener here, that he himself becomes, practically, the gardener and the one who does everything. The soul desires an intense freedom, and its virtues and good deeds are stronger than in the prayer of quiet. The flowers of the garden are in full bloom, offering life-giving fragrance, yet this third degree of prayer does not culminate in further stillness or inactivity but joins both the active and contemplative life together. Teresa claims that the person is able to conduct works of charity and business affairs, while at the same time that the best part of the soul is elsewhere. The prayer of union, or fourth degree of prayer, is compared to water falling from heaven. Nothing can be done to bring the life-giving waters of rain. Its blessing is simply received. The gardener is now joined with heavenly love, and experiences intimate communion with God, and the greatest tenderness in the soul. The gift of the prayer of union softens the soul, by living in great detachment from self-interest, and begins to be of benefit to its neighbors almost without knowing it, or doing anything of itself. Inseparable from its divine source, the center of the soul is one with God, and the eyes of the soul are open to the vanity of the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Christian Saints Podcast. Look for the Christian Saints Podcast page on Facebook or Instagram, or find us on Twitter at podcast underscore saints. All music in this episode was composed by my good friend, James John Marks of Generative Sounds. Please check out his music at generativesoundsjjm.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use so that more people can find the Christian Saints podcast and be blessed by these stories of the saints. The following poem was etched in St. Teresa of Avila's Beverly. Online, you can see images of it in her own handwriting. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things pass away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. He who has God finds he lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Mm-hmm.